The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, meet talking book narrator L.J. Ganser on this holiday edition of ACB Reports for December 2009. When the American Foundation for the Blind closed its New York recording studio in October of this year, L.J. Ganser had been narrating talking books for AFB for 15 years. He shared his experiences as a talking book narrator, along with some thoughts about the closing of this important recording facility during the National Convention of the American Council of the Blind last summer. Here is L.J. Ganser. Before I begin my tell-all story of my life as an undercover billionaire spy and occasional audiobook narrator, I want to share with you my first contact into the extremely dangerous world of public speaking at blindness conventions. Late last summer, I had just finished a recording at American Foundation for the Blind in New York City, and the operations manager, a jovial fellow by the name of Lou Gutierrez, called me into his office. Lou said, Hey, buddy, you got a minute? I said, Sure, Lou, am I getting fired? He said, no, no, we don't usually do that until Christmas Eve. (laughs) So, what's up, Lou? Yeah, well, I got a phone call earlier today from some lady out on Long Island, a uh, Lisa something or other, and she says she's looking for a speaker for some kind of function they're doing out there, and uh, it recommended you. What's her last name, Lou? I can't quite make out your handwriting. Uh, Terzi Wakai. Maybe there's a Wookiee? Like she's from Star Wars or something? I don't know. So the meeting ended, and I took Lisa's phone number, and the next afternoon I called her up. Lisa couldn't have been nicer. And after getting a little get-to-know-you chit-chat, I asked her this. Lisa, how do you pronounce your last name? And she said, Javutsky. I wouldn't have guessed Javutsky in a million years. I want to start with this anecdote because as a book narrator, one of the greatest challenges and responsibilities for me is to pronounce each and every syllable of each and every word that I record correctly. And I'd say that 99.999% of the time, I know the words already. But when I come across something I'm not sure of, I write it down and I look it up. And if I can't find the word in a dictionary or online, I'll start asking the in-house experts at the foundation. I'll go to Ken Kleban for Yiddish, George Holmes for Welsh, Terry Donnelly for Irish, Gordon Gould for German. Now, if that fails, I'll try the book's editors. And if they can't come through, I call the authors directly if I can find them. A couple of years back, I actually got David Halberstam on the line. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. I wanted to know the right way to say the names of certain firemen who appeared in his book, Firehouse. Now, that book is about um, the men who worked at Engine Company 4035. That's a firehouse on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Quite a few of the men in that firehouse passed away when the towers went down, and it was a very moving book. And I wanted to be absolutely certain that I had those guys' names down. The author answered on the first ring. Halberstam, he said. You ever called someone on the phone and known right away that you should not waste any time on pleasantries? 
So I cut right to the chase and I spelled the names in question. And Mr. Halberstam then pronounced them for me clearly, distinctly, and once. <laughs> so I got what I wanted. I said, thank you very much, Mr. Halberstam. And he said, you're welcome, right before I heard his receiver crash down. As short as that conversation had been, it was exhilarating, and I felt like I had just been sharing a swimming pool with a great white shark who wasn't hungry. There was another author that I called, and he was a, um, a guy who climbed enormous mountains up in Alaska and the Northwestern Territories when he wasn't being a lawyer, some kind of environmental lawyer type. And this guy couldn't get off the phone with me. He just wanted to talk and talk. And, you know, he had a lot of crazy names to pronounce, a lot of Indian names of mountains he'd been up on top of. But the opening sequence in his book was so horrific. Basically, he was hiking through the God-forbidden territories of Alaska with a younger climber, just the two of these guys. And they walked, roped together, and the younger guy fell into a crevasse. And the guy who wrote the book doesn't fall in, but the younger guy, he got wedged upside down in the crevasse, about 30 feet down. So this attorney, who wrenched his shoulder, his shoulder had come out of the socket during the fall, climbs down into the crevasse and tries to get the kid out. Can't do it. Nobody to call. No 911, nothing. Kid passes away during the night. It's an unbelievable story, but the guy walks back out of the wilderness, goes back, they bring his body out, they have a big burial service. I'm thinking this guy is going to be some kind of a wacky hermit when I call him on the phone. Some kind of a guy, it's just, I can't talk about it. He was Mr. Jolly. It was an amazing thing, the stuff he'd gone through. On a lighter note, there have been many words whose proper pronunciation that I have assumed to know when I recorded them. And you know what they say about the word assume? Yeah. I've read entire books braying out words that uh, I thought I knew, only to discover after the proofreaders got through that I'd made an egregious error. Here's the story of my all-time favorite mispronounced word. About a year into my career at Talking Books, I was given a terrific novel by a man named David Goodis. It was called The Burglar, and it's a crime noir classic. I'm a big fan of hard-boiled crime fiction, and The Burglar, to this day, is one of my all-time favorite reads. It opens with a spine-tingling scene that places the reader in a 3 a.m. jewel heist inside a car parked outside of a dark mansion where our hero, the burglar himself, is whispering final instructions to his three henchmen. Two men, one woman, the burglar's girlfriend. Suffice it to say that the group makes the heist grabs a large bag of emeralds from a wall safe without tripping the alarm or waking up the guard dogs. The action is relentless, and the tension never releases until the final page, where this psychological crime thriller pays off with one of the most visually arresting endings I have ever read out loud or to myself. However, there is a town whose name appears in The Burglar around 148 times. When I pre-read the book and saw that town name, I breezed right on through it. No need to look that one up. No sorry, Bob. I'm going to spell the name of this town in just a moment, and I want for you as a group to say it out loud after I count to three. Three syllables. Here we go. L-A-N-C-A-S-T-E-R. All right, I'm going to count now, and then everybody say the name out loud. One, two, three. How many of you said Lancaster? 
Yeah, you're all wrong. <laughs> How many said Lancaster? Oh, I guess I'm dumber than I thought. All right. <laughs> anyway, that mispronounced name cost me about four hours of unpaid free time because I had to sit in the booth while my engineers sought out all the offending Lancasters to replace them with Lancasters. I nearly lost my mind replacing them. There'd be a scene in the book that went something like this. The Pontiac slowed when they saw the horse cart ahead and pulled up next to it. The driver of the Pontiac rolled the window down, threw his cigarette to the road, and yelled up to the bearded old man in the sulky, Hey, mister, how many miles to Lancaster? Lancaster? You don't want to go to Lancaster. Lancaster is an evil place. Well, I got to go to Lancaster because I'm meeting a business associate there. Don't go to Lancaster. Why wouldn't I want to go to Lancaster? Because there's crazy Amish kids there with the pitchfork fever. And they're pitchforking anybody that's not from Lancaster. In Lancaster, you say? That's what I'm saying in Lancaster. The devil come down to Lancaster. Crazy Amish kids in Lancaster? Y'all are y'all making crazy with the pitchforks in Lancaster. Well, who knew? Thanks for the tip, pal. Hey, here's an emerald for your trouble. Change your plans, boys and girls. We ain't stopping in Lancaster. In another life, I'm still correcting those Lancasters. That scene sums up how I felt about the Lancaster debacle, and it also exemplifies why I never take any pronunciations for granted any longer. See, doing corrections is part of the deal when you do audiobooks. And nowadays, with everything being done digitally, it's very easy for a reader to make the correction and have the editor put the fix on the hard drive. But when I recorded The Burglar, we were still back in the day when we did our work on audio tape. And that correction was a different story from today's digital world. See, when we had a word that needed fixing back then, you'd need to redo all the words around that mistake and do it so it fit back into the sentence perfectly. What you didn't want to do was mess up the timing of the read because then you had to start rereading whole sentences or whole paragraphs and make that fit into what you had already recorded. If you couldn't recreate your original rhythm, you were sunk. Say the word that needed fixing was DiMaggio, as in Jolton Joe. I got that word wrong, even though I'm a lifetime baseball fan, because I always thought his name was DiMaggio. It's not. According to the pronunciation fascists, no, no, I mean the wonderfully attentive bureaucrats in Washington, <laughs> they said I had to fix DiMaggio because it's DiMaggio. I only had to fix DiMaggio about 73 times. So to fix it, my engineer would rig up that 88-minute-long reel of audio tape, fast forward to the fix-in place, say 37 minutes, 14 seconds in from the top of the reel. So in a couple minutes searching, he'd get there and we'd line up the sentence. Say the sentence went something like this. Before becoming famous as Mr. Coffee, Joe DiMaggio hit safely in 56 consecutive baseball games and married the beautiful Marilyn Monroe, who was worshipped by millions of men as the world's most alluring woman. Now, if I read the correction too slowly, the following might occur. Before becoming famous as Mr. Coffee, Joe DiMaggio was worshipped by millions of men as the world's most alluring woman. Obviously, that correction would never do. There's a whole host of people I might offend with that one. Most likely, the millions of angry men still worshipping Marilyn Monroe. 
So I'd spend a lot of unpaid time with my engineer getting the timing of that right, and no one would ever know the difference. There are some words that I have very strong feelings about pronouncing correctly. I just don't like the way they sound. When I say these words out loud, I feel that it's not the way people hear them or say them these days. Here's a short selection of my least favorite correctly pronounced words. Short-lived. As in, the relationship between the two royals was remarkably short-lived. I think to get away with saying short-lived in this day and age, you must be forced to wear a cape and be named either Sir Roderick or Milady Gwyneth. And if you own a dog, it must be a Welsh corgi. Here's another one that ought to go out the window. Frequented. As in, the sheriff frequented a bawdy bordello where he engaged in many short-lived affairs with Milady Gwyneth. Frequented should be replaced with frequented, or better yet, erased from the English language altogether. Like pretty much everybody here, my earliest influences were my parents. The first I remember being read to was my dad's magical rendition of Clement Clark Moore's famous holiday poem, The Night Before Christmas. My brothers and I would sit around the tree spellbound as he let the rhymes and the images work their magic. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer? While dad was reading, I would sit with my mouth agape and then leap to the window and search the dark sky for that red sleigh and those flying reindeer the moment he finished the poem. I think one of the main reasons he was so good at reading the story was simply because he enjoyed doing it so much. He saw the effect he was having on the audience. I'm not sure if he knew how hard he was making it on us kids to fall asleep that night, because like a lot of kids and former kids, I remember tossing and turning for hours, praying and hoping to hear those far-off jingling sleigh bells coming closer before hearing that slight bump on the roof and the skidding stop that announced Santa's visit. My dad used a vocal trick when reading that poem that made him sound far away that I use now when I am recording as he recited the final line in the poem. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. My mom, on the other hand, would read to me every night, and she specialized in character voices. Her reading of Charlotte's Web, E.B. White's classic, was a major influence on my approach. Her rendition of Charlotte's voice was silky. Why, how perfectly simple. The way to save Wilbur's life is to play a trick on Zuckerman. If I can fool a bug, I can surely fool a man. People are not as smart as bugs. Mom's geese were hysterical and frantic. Look out! The people are coming! Umming, umming! shouted the gander. Cheese it! Cheese it! Cheese it! And Templeton, the scheming rat, was Jack Nicholson before there was Jack Nicholson. Struggle if you must, pig, but kindly remember that I'm hiding down here in this crate and I don't want to be stepped on or kicked in the face or pummeled or crushed in any way. Just watch what you're doing, Mr. Radiant, when they get to shoving you in. That was mom. 
My first influence outside the home was comic books. When I was a child, my mom would take my brothers and me grocery shopping at a store called Supergiant in Annandale, Virginia, where we lived until I was 12. In one of the aisles, there was a rack of comic books, and it was there that my mom would drop me off while she and the younger brothers went shopping. That was my little bit of heaven, and I'd stare up at the brightly colored covers and grab the latest Metal Men comics and dive into that story so deeply I'd practically be living and fighting my way through the magazine where the two strong guy metal men, lead and iron, would morph into enormous Roman shields protecting their inventor, Dr. Will Magnus, from the just-awakened gigantic flying radioactive manta ray while brainy gold and sexy platinum raced into the sky, each transforming into enormous metallic nets in a desperate attempt to slow the evil monster down, while mercury boiled and tin covered the doctor. In my head, I would supply the soundtrack to the covers, and here is what the radioactive manta ray cover sounded like to my six-year-old ears. Stay behind me, Doc. I can hold those death rays off a few more seconds before I melt. Hold on, Iron Tina, and I will fly up. Fall back, middlemen. Better to live and fight another day than wind up on the scrap heap against that evil monster. That's where I learned to read. <laughs> Didn't need the words, man. So once I found comic books, I was hooked. And I'd stay at that rack and pore over Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and the Hulk and Batman until I heard the man on the PA announce, Will L.J. Ganser please come immediately to register for and meet your mother? She is ready to go home and says your brother Gregory needs his diaper changed. <laughs> that was a time to pretend that I was not L.J. Ganser. So I would calmly flip through another few pages of Metal Men, roll it up in my back pocket, and saunter down the cereal aisle. No, no, L.J. Ganser wasn't me. No, I was just your basic dude picking up some frosted flakes for my bachelor pad 20 feet up in the air in the old oak tree right behind the house where my alleged family lived. When I finally did make it to register four and saw the look on my impatient mom's face, I would raise my arms to the sky and yell, Flame on! and instantly become Johnny Storm, the human torch, and blaze my way past the scowling store manager, past my exasperated mother, and beyond the reach of my squirming, stinky-butt brother. In grammar school, I loved waking up early to get in a few more pages of the Hardy Boys with Frank and Joe and their chubby chum, Chet. The Hardy Boys were living the life that I yearned for, solving mysteries, dodging death at least twice a day, somehow still getting all their homework done, hooking up with the hot girls at the high school dances, plus starring on three different varsity sports. They were the first multitaskers, weren't they? And nowadays, I'm a big fan of historical fiction with a healthy dose of action-adventure thrown in. I recently recorded Soul Catcher by Michael White, which was one of those very rare books where the work was a pure joy. Now, I can't say it was effortless because it took a lot of concentration to do the story right. 
Soul Catcher was one of those books where my job was to simply say the words and get out of the way. Reading books like that, I come out of the booth more energized than when I went in. And that's when I become a lifetime fan of an author. When the pictures in the story are so vivid, when the sounds and the smells and the tensions are in the very fabric of the spaces between the words, when the characters are so tightly drawn that I can see them and hear their voice and know their hearts. Besides Soul Catchers, I've had similar experiences reading Nobody's Fool by Richard Russo, No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, Dog Days by Michael Katz, beautiful book about raising dogs up in New Hampshire, and I got to do Native Son by Richard Wright. A lot of other books, far too numerous to mention, that, that work like that. I started my recording career as a volunteer at the Jewish Guild for the Blind on 65th Street in Manhattan. At the time, I was a young, out-of-work actor, wondering if maybe this acting thing wasn't all that after all, and maybe I should actually reconsider dental school. I was at my union hall, the Actors' Equity Association, and I was perusing the notice board where you'd find people looking for roommates and folks looking for rides to L.A., among other things. And down in the lower corner of the board, on a handwritten note card, I saw a notice looking for volunteer readers for the blind. So I made an appointment, auditioned, passed it, and they gave me a book. The book was Jurassic Park. They could not have hooked me better if they'd tried. It was Metal Men all over again, only 20 years later. This time with grown-up characters and more historically correct monsters. Roar! So I read a few books at uh, JGB, including one of the Spencer for Hire mysteries by Robert B. Parker. Yeah. And a, a wonderful modern work of South Africa, pre-Nelson Mandela's release and ascension to power. It was called My Traitor's Heart. And it was probably written two years before Mandela came to power. It was a wonderful work. If you ever get a chance, check it out. So after working at JGB, I started doing a lot of theater work in New York City. And one of the plays I did was a restoration comedy by Ferenc Molnar called The Guardsman. The Lunts, a famous theater couple, had made it famous back in the 20s. And it was a great hit during the Noel Coward Lawrence Olivier era. Now, our production of The Guardsman was not enjoying the same kind of success as The Lunts. And our troupe would frequently play to audiences of four and five people who sat on freezing cold bleachers in an Upper West Side dance studio. Two of those people included my girlfriend at the time and her mother, who sat through one of the freezing performances but stuck around long enough with me after the performance to become my wife and mother-in-law. <laughs> one of my co-stars in The Guardsman was a fellow named John Bean who played the surly know-it-all, making clever observations about the state of the relationship between the leading lady and me. And I found out later backstage that he was the Talking Books manager at American Foundation for the Blind. I told him about my experience at JGB and told him I'd like to audition. He said, yeah, pal, you and every other actor in New York, but come on by, we'll lay something down and send it on down to Washington. They liked me in D.C., and here I am. Now, one of the great difficulties I face as a reader is maintaining the connection between the audience and myself. The audience is out there, as the X-Files used to say. And I don't have the benefit of their reaction to keep me focused. Sometimes I'll sneak a look at the engineer to see if he's with me, but sometimes yes, sometimes no. Basically, I do this work alone, but as a storyteller, I want the group around me, sitting around the campfire. I want their active listening to help keep me focused. There are books I've recorded that I haven't particularly cared for. 
those are hard to record because I'm fighting my own lack of interest and sometimes my strong dislike for the material. What keeps me on my toes when I'm doing that is imagining a person who loves that work. That person deserves my full attention and so I'll bend to the task and I'll hunker down. Perhaps not as happy as when I do Soul Catcher or 50 Years of the Peanuts Gang by Charles Schultz, but I do my best. It's not for me to judge someone else's style or taste. Narrating books is actually a physically demanding job. In the booth, you sit still as a statue while achieving very intense emotional states. Too much movement, a page rustle, a stumble on a word, and you start again. Breaking a rhythm is tough. Now, a normal shift in the booth is two hours. When I'm going good, I'll lay down somewhere between 75 and 90 minutes of finished recorded material. It's hard talking that long, sitting up straight for that long. If the book's a bore, it's even harder. But these are minor inconveniences because the joys far outweigh the sorrows. Before I finish, I want to mention the upcoming closing of the New York Talking Book Studios this October. It seems that the Library of Congress cannot come up with enough money to make the New York operation profitable, or even break even for that matter, and the foundation, after many years of underwriting the loss, can't continue to do so because the bequests and donations that have kept it going for so long are down. So after 75 years in the business, we're closing this October. I'm going to hope that there might be a few fans sitting out there right now who will miss the New York readers enough to call their congressman or their senator or David Patterson in New York State. You know David Patterson. Or President Barack Obama, for God's sake, if anybody knows him. Tell the LOC to up the ante. Because here's the little secret. The LOC has not upped the ante in 15 years. So nobody wants to take over for us because they're not going to make any money. And I just think it's a shame that you won't ever be hearing any new works from the likes of Suzanne Torin, Gordon Gould, Ralph Lowenstein, Barbara Caruso, Frank Coffey, Bill Quinn, Patricia Kilgariff, Ken Kleban. Folks, the list goes on and on and on and on, and it's hundreds of years of experience, and it's tens of thousands of titles. And all of us in New York are going to miss the work terribly. It's been a touchstone for so many of us and an honor to have been your partners all these many years. I'm a lucky reader, and I've found my way to different recording companies in addition to talking books, so my career won't shut down when the studios do, although I miss you terribly. In closing, I'm going to try and condense for you why I enjoy what I do. As an actor, you usually play one role at a time. If that's Hamlet, you're golden. Stanley Kowalski, fantastic. Archie Bunker, bada-bing! But if it's the fourth spear carrier from the left in the eighth row of the Roman legion, you're a moving prop. And that's something I did once and will never do again. But with talking books, I'm playing every part in the show. From the omniscient narrator to the damsel in distress. From the burglar with the heart of gold to the hanging judge. From Bambi to T-Rex. I love that I get to play all those different roles. It's good to see you here today because it's important for me to remember whom the end users are, who this work is for. I will recall your faces in the future when I'm in the booth wrestling with a scene. We're all part of this process, authors, narrators, listeners, and through this medium we share time and story and wonder. This has been an honor and a joy. Thanks for listening to Talking Books. You've made a lot of actors, especially this one. Very happy to be able to do the kind of work that I do. Thank you and enjoy the day.
L.J. Ganser was recorded at the 48th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in Orlando, Florida, July 2009. been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.